We're going to be looking at Luke 7, the first 17 verses. And there are two stories that are told here. In the life and the narrative of Luke, Jesus uh, is encountering two different people. And they're, they're seemingly somewhat unrelated stories, but they're both stories about Jesus seeking. And there are people that are radically different experiences in life with one thing in common that binds these two events together that give us insight and, and clues to understanding the seeking heart of Christ and then to ask the question, how do I apply that to my life today? So with that in mind, you think about looking for the, the key or thinking about looking for lost souls, whatever the case may be. Let's look at Luke chapter 7, the first 17 verses. Hear the word of God. Speaking about Jesus, Luke writes, After he had finished all his sayings in the, uh, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Literally in the Greek, it, it probably would be a better translation to say he was dearly loved by him. This was more than just an employer-employee relationship. The centurion cared deeply uh, for this servant of his. There was an emotional bond, an emotional connection. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus, after, excuse me, and Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon after her, afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Then he came and he touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this time where we worship you with our minds and our hearts, when we think about and consider and ponder your truth, your word, Father, I pray for each and every one of us that we would hear what it is that the Spirit wants to say to the church this morning. Father, that we would understand that you are speaking today just as you've spoken in every generation and that you are giving us the opportunity to sit at your feet and learn from you. Lord Jesus, I pray that I would not get in the way of what you want to teach us this morning. 
It is your word that is eternal. It is your word that is perfect. It is your word that holds the power. My words are irrelevant and without weight. Lord Jesus, don't let my sin come in the way of us hearing and learning. I confess to you and ask your forgiveness. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come in power, that you would take the word of God and you would apply it to our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at this passage through uh, four different observations, and I'm going to give you the observations, and then we're going we're to go back through and, and work through them. The first observation is this. We're going to consider the people whom Jesus seeks. We're going to look, uh, look at the centurion, and then we're going to look at the uh, widow of Nain. Uh, then we're going to consider the seeking strategy of Jesus. Did these events just kind of happen? It was just so by happenstance that Jesus, uh, when he came uh, off the, the mountain from preaching the Beatitudes, that he just happened to run in to these uh, Jewish rabbis who were representing the centurion? Did he just so happen that he was coming into Nain and at the time that his funeral was going on? Or was there actually some kind of bigger strategy and plan behind that? Thirdly, we're going to consider the emotion of Jesus the seeker. Is, is his heart in this, or is he kind of just uh, doing a job that he's been called to do? What's, what's the Lord's uh, emotion uh, that's involved? How much kind of weight is he putting into this uh, set of circumstances? And then fourthly, the end result of Jesus the seeking. What happens? Uh, and what difference does it make? What difference does it make in the lives of these people? And what difference does it make in your life? And what difference does it make uh, in mine as we are gathered here together uh, this morning? Well, the first thing we're going to do is, and we're going to, and let me say this also, we're going to run down parallel tracks. We're not going to work through the passage uh, kind of sequentially, but we're going to look at both the centurion and the widow kind of simultaneously. So we'll bounce around a little bit, but the verses will be on the screen. You ought to be able to, to follow. Okay. Well, first of all, the people whom Jesus seeks. The, the, the first one we meet is the centurion, and the centurion uh, in verses 2 through 8 of this chapter, chapter, we learn a variety of things about this man. In fact, Luke, in just a few verses, gives us a pretty thorough explanation. The first, simply by his title. He's a centurion. He's a man of authority. He has a responsibility uh, for leading other men. He's a soldier. He's a professional soldier. He's probably been a soldier all of his life, and he's risen through the ranks. And he's now leading a group of men who are stationed in this area of the empire. He's a person of authority. He's a person that would be uh, looked up to in the community. But not only is he a person of authority, but you also get a glimpse in the fact that in his character, there is a kindness, there is a, there's a gentleness, there is a, a love bond uh, in uh, his relationship with this servant. Now, Luke uses the word here that really is the word for slave. This is not an employee of his. This is going back into, into a Jesus day, into antiquity, when the Romans conquered nations. They bought and sold slaves. And this man is one who, who has uh, surrendered his life to the master, so to speak. But this master loves this servant dearly. He, he is thankful for the relationship and the bond that exists between the two of them. And so when the servant has become sick, the centurion is greatly troubled, not because he's worried about losing uh, a helping hand, but because he loves this one who lives under his household. The centurion is a kindly person. He's also a man of great influence. Notice that he summons the Jewish leaders of the town, and he says to them, you know, I've heard about this Jesus. I've heard that, that he's a healer. I've heard that, that he can work miracles. I would like for you men to go and represent me to Jesus and ask him if he would find it within his heart to heal my servant. And the rabbis of the town, the leaders, the town council, so to speak, 
say, we'll be happy to. This is a man of influence. This is a man who has built relationships with people so that when time comes to ask a favor, people are glad to respond. Well, part of his influence, Luke tells us, is built on the fact that he's also a man of generosity. The, uh, the leaders, when they come to Jesus, they say, you know, Lord, uh, we think that you should do this for him. He l- not only loves our nation, you know, he, he's a kindly person in, in the fact that he's over us authoritatively, but he doesn't oppress us. Uh, he loves us, but he's also the one who's built our synagogue. In other words, he reached in his pocket and he paid the money for the local church to be built. Now, we meet in a school. We haven't built a church building yet, and we don't have any immediate plans to build a building. We're thinking about facilities and how all that should work, and we're talking about some of those ideas. But uh, there are a couple reasons why we haven't built a church. One of them is we want to be committed to the Kirkwood community. We like the idea that, you know, there, there aren't any artificial doors, so to speak, between us and the community. And so meeting in a school kind of kind of makes that a little bit easier. Uh, but secondly, there's a financial decision involved. If you're going to buy property in Kirkwood and build a building, you need to probably have about $15 million. Now, if any of you have the gift of generosity and you have those kind of pockets, I'll be happy to talk with you after the service. But this man, I, I don't want you to think he gave him a couple hundred bucks. This man reached deep into his wealth and he built their synagogue. He's a man of great generosity. He's also a man of humility. He says to Jesus, I'm not worthy to come to you. It's not that he sent his hirelings because he didn't think that Jesus was worthy of his attention, but he looked at Jesus and he looked at the reputation of of this one who was at the very least a great prophet. And he saw his own life and he said, you know, I'm I'm not worthy to come before the Lord with this kind of request. There was humility in his life that was appropriate. But also notice that he was a man of faith. He says to Jesus, you know, I understand authority. I say to one, go, he goes. I say to one, come, he comes. If you but say the word, my servant will be healed. There's no doubt here. There's no question. There's no confusion. There is a trust in the Lord. And so one of the people that Jesus is seeking is this centurion, this Roman uh, foreigner. But there's also another whom he seeks. In verse 11 and 12, we read the next story. Afterwards, he went to a town called Nain. And his disciples, with his disciples and a great crowd, they were with him. As they drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. We meet a very, very different person in these next few verses. We meet a woman who is burying a son. Think about that for just a moment. Think about the pain you would feel you lost a child. Some of the folks in this congregation have lost children. Think about the suffering that that brings into a family, into a home. And here's a woman who has one son. She doesn't have several children. This is her only son. Think about how the only son is the pride and the joy. Think about all the affection and all the love. Think about the relationship that goes into that bond between a mother and her child. And now she's walking out of the town to bury him. But her circumstances aren't bad just because she's lost her son, but she's also a widow. In other words, at some point prior to the death of her son, her husband has also died. Obviously at at an earlier age than she would have hoped, and now she's in a very vulnerable position. In Jesus's day and age, for a woman not to have a, a husband or a son or an extended family to care for her, put her in a very tenuous spot. 
And even though there's a large crowd with her who certainly understand her pain and her suffering, are certainly there to support her and try to encourage her. You know, they were uh, perhaps the Stephen ministers of that town doing a, a loving and a gracious thing. That was no guarantee that she would be okay, that there would be uh, a provision for her, for food and for shelter and for life. And so Jesus, on the one hand, meets a person of great authority and great wealth. And on the other hand, he meets a widow who is broken by the disaster of life and is vulnerable to what has just happened. And yet both of them have something very much in common. Both of them are in desperate need, and neither of them have the ability on their own strength to alleviate their suffering. And so that leads me to the first question. Jesus is obviously sensitive to the brokenness of this world. Jesus is obviously willing to roll up his sleeves and engage in life as it comes, not as we would hope that it would be. Jesus isn't the one who who preaches the sermon and then lives in the ivory tower. Jesus is the one who walks beside us day in and day out, whether it is life or death, whether it is glory or tragedy. The heart of Jesus is to seek out the brokenness in this world and confront it with the gospel, with the truth, with life. If we are his disciples, Do we walk through life with those same lenses, so to speak? Are we looking to engage the brokenness of our world with the truth that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ? Are we looking for clues as we study this gospel and we look at Jesus' life? Do we ask the question, how do I see that in my life? Friend, that's what discipleship means. It means that we don't try to just kind of casually help look for the car keys occasionally. Doesn't mean that if it's convenient for us and if I have a few minutes, I might, you know, walk next door and talk to my neighbor about Jesus, but rather I see the world as he sees it. I'm reading a book right now. I'm about halfway through it called The Coldest Winter. Uh, it's, a, it's a book about the Korean War, and I'd never studied the Korean War before. It's a big, thick book. It's a fascinating read. But I'm actually in the, in the part of the book where it's talking about the late fall and early winter of 1950. Uh, when Douglas MacArthur is at the, at the zenith of uh, his popularity. He has done this end run around the Korean Peninsula. He has routed the North Koreans. It looks like Korea is going to be unified, and they're pushing as fast as they possibly can to, to the Yalu River, which is in the very northern portion of North Korea, which is the boundary of Manchuria and North Korea, China and North Korea. And as they push forward at lightning speed, and as all the headlines back at home say how glorious this victory is, MacArthur's headquarters start to get news about Chinese troops amassing on the border. MacArthur begins to hear that there are 50,000, 70,000, 100,000, 200,000, eventually 300,000 troops, over 10 division of Chinese infantry that are on the Yalu, and word keeps coming in. They're going to cross the Yalu. They're going to counterattack. The Chinese are going to enter the war. And MacArthur ignored warning after warning after warning. And it resulted in one of the worst military disasters this country has ever seen and the needless loss of thousands upon thousands of lives. Friends, there are within our relationships through Green Tree, we have several hundred people at Green Tree. There are literally relations, those represent thousands of relationships. Are we walking through life with blinders on, ignoring the need, or are we compassionately seeking to find people whom Jesus seeks? Well, not only in this text do we see the people whom Jesus seeks, but secondly, we see perhaps the seeking strategy 
uh, of Jesus. Let's look again at the centurion. In verse uh, 3, the centurion heard about Jesus, and he sends the Jews to ask him this question. They come and they plead with him. They give him all the reasons. And then it simply says in verse 6, and Jesus went with them. As it happened one day, as Jesus had finished teaching, some folks came up to him and said, would you mind coming with us? We think there's something you could do to help in our particular town. And Jesus says, well, yeah, I just so happen to be here. Sure, I'll come along with you. Perhaps a few days or, or, or a day or two or maybe even a week or so after that, Jesus finds himself into the, walking into the city of Nain. And it just so happens that a widow is coming out of the, the city to bury her son. And in and, and a quirk of fate, Jesus comes together with this woman who is brokenhearted and sad. We might say in our modern vernacular, uh, as fate would have it, both of these folks encountered the Lord Jesus. I want to suggest to you that, that, that uh, if you read the Scripture that way, you have missed a thread that winds its way through Scripture, which is the sovereign purpose of God to save people, that God does not do things by happenstance, that God does not wait for some kind of fate to occur, but rather as we look at stories like the ones we see in Luke, we find this common thread. Yes, as fate would have it, Jesus met the centurion. He met the widow just as his fate would have it when Abraham was raising his hand with his knife to slay his only son on the altar. He looked and there just so happened to be a ram in the thicket. Just like by coincidence, when Joseph's brothers were going to kill him and and the oldest brother intervened and said, well, let's just throw him down in this well. Just out of an odd coincidence, there were a band of Ishmaelite traders that were traveling down to Egypt. And it just so happened that the oldest brother of Joseph said, why don't we just sell him? Let's not kill him. And then his blood won't be in our heads. And we know that ultimately Joseph was used by God to save the young, small people of Israel. It just so happened that one day while Moses was watching his flocks that there was a bush that he saw that was burning but didn't burn up. Ironically, Ruth was harvesting in the fields of Boaz trying to take care of she and her mother-in-law, Naomi. As it would happen by fate, David found himself in a cave along with his archenemy, King Saul, whom he was able to confront and by God's grace was relieved of that struggle for a time. Esther inexplicably found herself as the queen of Persia at the very moment when Haman was plotting to kill all of the Jews in the empire. Nehemiah inadvertently was cupbearer to a king when Jerusalem lay in ruins and needed someone to come and help rebuild the walls. Friends, Scripture is filled with a quirky amount of fate after quirky amount of fate because it isn't fate. It's the plan of God to interact with people, to meet them at their point of need, to bring about salvation and mercy and grace and healing. I don't even have to look at the pages of Scripture. I can look at the experience of my own life. It just so happened that my second semester of my senior year when I had my, my career all plotted out and it had absolutely nothing to do with ministry. Some of you might be sad to hear the rest of this story, but the facts are unexpectedly, the youth director at the church where I was a volunteer in the youth ministry quit, and I was offered the job. Unintentionally, without any planning whatsoever, I was walking on a beach in Jekyll Island, Georgia at a youth conference, only to look up and see a buddy of mine from high school walk in the other direction. And we both had the exact same thought. I thought, what is Jeff doing here at a Christian conference? And he thought, what is Tom doing here at a Christian conference? And we met up. He was an elder of a church here in St. Louis that was looking for a new youth pastor. 
And several months later, I find myself in St. Louis working for a pastor who said he would never allow me to go to seminary. He said, I've had youth directors go to seminary and we're not going to do that. I want you to just come and do youth ministry. And then for some reason, I have no idea how it happened. A quirk of fate, nine months later, that same pastor stood before the session of that church and said, not only is Tom going to seminary, but this church is going to pay for it. All in favor, say aye. And he was the kind of man that got everybody to say aye. Not only was I in seminary, but I came out of seminary without any student loans. While I was in seminary, working at that church doing youth ministry, Four or five of the key leaders in my youth ministry were some of the founders of Green Tree Community Church, and those relationships were being laid at that moment. We were in a session meeting a few weeks ago, and there was a young man coming before the elders. He's in seminary, and you have to do this thing called coming under care of a session. And all that means is that if you're going to be in seminary and you want to be a pastor, you've got to get a group of elders to say, yeah, we think it's a good thing. You ought to do it. So we were listening to his story. We're listening to his testimonies, talking about how he came to Christ. Some 23 years before I was sitting in this room with these elders, listening to this guy tell a story, I'm sitting at the airport Marriott in Atlanta, Georgia, in a conference room, and we're talking about starting a conference called Great Escape, which is a youth ministry summer conference for middle school kids. And we started it off in in Bristol, Tennessee with about 300 kids, and then it grew to about 800 kids, and then two weeks, and we ended up with about 1,600 kids, and it got so big we had to start one in Wisconsin, and we had one in Pennsylvania, one in Florida, and then a few years later when I moved uh, out to St. Louis, I helped start one in Gunnison, Colorado. Great escape. Fast forward 23 years, we're sitting in this session meeting, this guy saying, we said, now tell us how you came to Jesus. He said, well, you probably never heard of this thing, but when I was in middle school, I was at a place in Gunnison, Colorado called The Great Escape where I gave my life to Jesus. Friends, there's a strategic plan of salvation that is marching through history. And it is no accident that you and I are in this generation, in this day, in this age, in this community, in the families in which we live, the businesses in which we operate, the schools that we attend, because Christ's plan of salvation includes you and me as his disciples sharing the gospel. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus, it's not by accident that you're here. Yeah, maybe somebody asked you, maybe on a whim you saw a sign you pulled in, but God in his plan wants you to know about the grace and the mercy that you can find in his son, Jesus Christ. And so the question I have to ask myself and the question I have to ask you is, are we open? Do we see God's plan right before our eyes? And as disciples, do we desire and long to be part of it? Not in a casual way, not in a passing way if it's, if it's convenient, but on a daily basis, do we give our lives to the fact that the gospel needs to be preached to every nation? Sometimes God has a sense of humor. I'm in my front yard yesterday, and I got my little squirt bottle, and I'm squirting the dandelions trying to kill them, okay? It's finally started to warm up, and I hate dandelions. And so I'm out there for about a half an hour, and I'm thinking to myself, the people who moved in next door have been there for a while, several months. So it turns out it's, it's been about a year, and I said, I've never met them. And I'm thinking, that's, you know, that's just being a bad neighbor. It's not just being a Christian. That's being a bad neighbor. And as I'm squirting these dandelions and thinking about this and talking to myself, I hear voices, and I look up, and they're standing. A guy and, and his girlfriend are standing in the backyard. So I walk over and lean across the fence and say, hey, I'm Tom Ricks. Nice to meet you. And they introduce themselves to me. She's from Lafayette, okay? She speaks broken English. I had to go look on a map to find out where Lafayette is. It's next to Estonia if that helps you at all, okay? I've never been to Lafayette. I don't speak Lafayette. 
And here's a woman trying to speak broken English, and I'm trying to introduce myself. I find out that he's, he's from the States, but, but he's a computer programmer. He does software. I don't know how to turn my computer on, okay? <laughs> but they live next door to me. And now I've met them. And now the door is cracked open about that wide. And my mindset needs to be, God, give me the opportunity to present them with the truth of the gospel because my eyes need to be open to the fact that God has a plan. Thirdly, we need to see the emotions of Jesus the seeker. When he engages with the centurion and the, and the centurion through his servants say, you know, I say to one, go and he goes, come and he comes and this will do that. And he, and he expresses his faith to Jesus. Here's Jesus's reaction in verse nine. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. We would say Jesus was astounded. He was, he was dumbfounded, so to speak, that there would be one of such deep faith, only knowing him by reputation. Now, I want to I let you know, friends, this shows the graciousness of Jesus. This shows the compassion and the kindness of Jesus, because if you have a faith and I have a faith, without going into a whole lot of theological detail, we didn't put it there in the first place. If you're a disciple of Jesus, if you've been saved, it's because the Holy Spirit gave you the faith to believe in the first place. I'm not going to go into all the Bible verses. Just trust me this morning, that's true. So here is Jesus confronted with a man's faith that, that the Holy Spirit gave him, and Jesus applauds him for that faith. He gives him the credit. What a gracious God that he would, in his gentleness, knowing full well that he planted the faith in the first place, Say to that guy, in, in, in a sense, way to go. You got it. Isn't that awesome? He understood that, that what that man was saying is, Jesus, if you say the word go, that illness is going to go. If you say the word come, health is going to come to my servant. If you say to his body, do this, you be healthy, it's going to happen. And Jesus, being the eternal God who had planted that faith in his heart, patted him on the back and said to everybody else around, that's what you need. The emotion of Jesus, the excitement of Jesus when somebody gets it. There's a very different emotion with the widow in verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. That word compassion is not a word that means he felt sorry for her or he wished that her circumstances would change. But when you see the word compassion used, especially in Scripture, there's an action involved with it. It's an emotion that moves you to action. I, uh, we have a, a compassion kit on our refrigerator. Maybe you have a compassion international child. We don't put that little girl from India up on our refrigerator and go, gee, we really hope that her circumstances get better. We really hope she gets some food and she gets some clothes and she gets an education boy, we really feel good about that and think good thoughts about it. No, Compassion International says, Tom Ricks, you write us a check for $34 every month and we'll make sure she gets that. Compassion is action. It's activity. And Jesus has compassion on here. What was, what was Jesus thinking? I don't know. Maybe he was thinking back a couple of thousand of years ago of a whole bunch of moms in Egypt whose oldest sons were killed by the Egyptians because they didn't want the male children to grow up and become men and maybe lead a revolt against them. I don't know, maybe Jesus was thinking about the moms in Bethlehem who, when he was a baby, wept because paranoid King Herod wiped out all of the little boys in that community because he didn't want someone to take over his poor, pitiful throne. Maybe Jesus was thinking about his own mother who was going to be there when he was crucified and executed as a murderer, as a criminal, 
as a common criminal. Maybe he was thinking about what his mom was going to experience in that moment. Perhaps he was thinking about the women at Green Tree Community Church who are moms who have had to bury children. I don't know exactly what went through his mind, but it was compassion, and it was grace, and it was mercy. And Jesus was emotionally attached to both of these people in these circumstances. And here's my point. An emotionally detached disciple is a contradiction in terms. I cannot claim to follow Jesus and not have my heart break when I am confronted with the awful circumstances that sin brings about in this world. I can't claim to be a disciple of Jesus and not get pumped up and excited and shout for joy when somebody comes to Christ. The emotion of Jesus His heart was right there on his sleeve and he loved those people so dearly and he was compassionate and he he was gracious because he was involved in this thing called salvation. Where is my emotion for the lives and the souls of people? And then fourthly, we need to see the end result. Why was Jesus seeking in the first place? Well, if you look at verse 10 with the centurion, it says this, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus is all about healing. He's all about restoring. He's all about new life. And so to everyone's relief in the household, when they get back, this servant is well. And they're not, they're not just relieved because, you know, the master of the house, because the centurion is happy, but, but you've been in a house where people are sick. You've been there where somebody's caught the flu and they've been down for a week and it just, you know, it, it feels so good when they, when they get up and they feel better. You know, I'm the worst patient in the world. When I get better at our house, everybody leaps for joy. You know, I'll have, I'll have like a terrible flu. I'll have like a, a really, really, really high, high fever, like, you know, like 99.4, you know. And I'll be laying in the bed, lying in the bed, I guess is the proper grammar. I'll have my eyes closed, and Cindy will come in the room, and I'll say, Honey, is that you? Could you just come close? Let me touch your cheek one last time. And could you make me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich while you're at it? I'm the worst patient in the world. And when I get better, everybody's leaping for joy because they knew I wasn't all that sick in the first place. But here's a, real, a guy who's on death's doorstep. Think about the party that must have happened, the celebration. The end result was not only that the centurion uh, was, was relieved of his emotional pain, but this, this servant was healed. And then look at the widow. This is astounding. The Lord Caesar, he has compassion on her, and he says something that I've never said to anybody who's lost a loved one. He says, do not weep. And the Greek, it's literally, stop your crying. There, there's almost a little tiny sense of a rebuke there. I've been in a lot of funeral homes. I've stood by a lot of gravesites, both young and old alike. I've gone into homes, some of your homes, when you've lost loved ones, and I've never once said to a person, now you stop your crying. You don't say that unless you know the end of the story. And you know what you have the power to do. And so Jesus says to her, I'm going to give you a chance to trust me in the middle of the worst circumstances you've ever experienced in your life. Stop your crying now. The only reason I'm going to stop my crying is if I think something miraculous is going to happen. And Jesus says, he follows up that message with this message. Young man, I say to you, arise. And the man wakes up. Doesn't wake up. He comes back from the dead. Let me be very clear about that. And he begins to speak. And then this is the greatest line in the whole thing. And Jesus gave him to his mother. What a beautiful story of the heart of Jesus, the end result. You know, Young Life uses this terminology. They say you got to earn the right to be heard. 
meaning you got to you really got to get into high school kids' lives. You got to hang out with them. You got to spend time with them. You got to befriend them if you want to be able to tell them about Jesus. I think Jesus earned the right to be heard. <laughs> he said, "Here's your son back," and the son was talking. He's alive. He was dead, and he's now okay. The end result of Jesus' seeking so that he can wipe our tears away and he can tell us ultimately arise and he can bring us into a relationship with our heavenly father. Healing, new life, redemption, salvation. That's the seeking heart of Jesus. But that's not up for debate this morning. It's a given. The question for you and for me is, does that describe our heart? 